Oh Lord our God, we thank you for your word, which is true, which is the only rule of faith and obedience for those of us who name the name of Christ. We ask now, O Lord, that you would give clarity to all of us in thought, and you would give clarity to me in speech as I seek to explain the word of God to your blood-purchased sheep. We ask this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the living word of God. Amen. Well, today we begin officially this adventure into the book of Ephesians. Two weeks ago, we began the new year with the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6, which is the foundation of all covenantal faith. And last week, we talked from the book of Revelation about the church at Ephesus and how it had lost its first love. Here are the first two verses of this book. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this man, Paul. He's a very important chap in history. There are some liberals who claim that he invented Christianity. It's a common phrase that you will hear, especially you young people. If you go to college and you uh, go to a secular college and you take a class in religion, world religions, you might hear something to this effect. That Jesus preached a religion about God, but that Paul created a religion about Christ. It sounds very eloquent, doesn't it? It is eloquent. It's a good rhetorical device. And it's patently false. Paul was given revelation by God. He was given revelation about the Christ that no man had ever been given. He makes that very plain in later chapters. It's important for us to understand that the revelation that God has given to His people is organic. It grows. You know more if you have read your New Testament with any understanding whatsoever. You know more than many of the prophets of the Old Testament knew. They looked forward to the Christ. We have the record of His life. They looked forward to something that they saw with a glimpse. We look back with something absolute clarity. When you read your New Testament, especially when you read the Gospels, that's as if you're watching a video. You can see it. Christ is on the cross. He's in the tomb. Oh, now He's not. Now He's gone. Christ wasn't here. Oh, and now He is born. Christ wasn't here, and now He is walking. Christ is now a 12-year-old in Luke. Now he is moving around and fighting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We see a living, breathing man, God. That was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It is completely revealed in the New Testament. When you read your Old and New Testaments together, they form a seamless library of revelation. There is no contradiction. Trust me. 
I have had many people tell me something to that effect. Well, you know that Bible that you believe in, that Bible that you preach in is full of contradictions. And I simply say, can you point a few out to me right now? Right now. Immediately, please tell me what you just said. And I'm no prophet, nor a son of a prophet, nor do I claim to be any uh, highfalutin scholar. I have yet to be duped by anyone who said that there is a contradiction there. What appears to be a contradiction to an unbeliever is utterly clear to a believer and can easily be explained to anyone who has any sense, any common sense whatsoever. If you understand that the revelation of God is organic... Paul didn't understand that. Remember, his name wasn't always Paul. What was his name? Saul. Saul. I've always thought it ironic that the apostle to the Gentiles, who really had a rough time of it in the ministry, that his birth name was Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And that when he became Paul, he was commissioned by the true king of Israel to go and preach the kinghood of Christ. That the kinghood of Christ, that the kingdom of Christ wasn't confined to a little strip of desert in Palestine, but that it was to blanket the entire earth. I also have always found it ironic that the first king of Israel, for whom Paul was named originally, was an incredibly ineffective king. You recall why they picked Saul to be the king? He was tall, strong, and handsome. Honestly, that's what the text says. He was a handsome fella. He was tall. He looked good. That's why they picked him. Certainly not going to make any comment on this year's elections. But do not vote for anybody just because they are tall, strong, and handsome. One's looks do not equate with one's ability to lead, and certainly not when it comes to leading God's people. Saul did a few good things. And they were always a mixed blessing. But his kinghood was an absolute and utter disaster. Paul's life started good. He was Saul of Tarsus, born a Roman citizen. We saw that in recent reading in the book of Acts when he was about to be flogged. He said, hey, is it, is it okay for you to flog a Roman citizen before hearing a trial? Oh, well, you're a Roman? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Hey, is it okay for you to flog a Roman citizen? And the centurion comes out and says, you're, you're a Roman. Yeah, mm-hmm. The centurion says, well, I, I purchased my citizenship at a good price. And Paul says, what? I was born a citizen. It means his parents were citizens. A Jew who was a citizen of the Roman Empire had certain civil rights that other Jews didn't have. That's why church tradition tells us and has always told us that while Peter was crucified upside down, and again, this is tradition, not in scripture, he was crucified upside down. They say, we've always said, because when they went to crucify him, he said, you better do it upside down because I'm not worthy to be in the same position as my Lord. Paul, on the other hand, was able to be beheaded because that was a much more merciful way for a man to go, only because he was a Roman citizen. One is quicker. It's just that simple.
I don't know how painful the one is, but the historical evidence is the crucifixion is literally that. Excruciating. That's where we get the word from. You say, ever use that word? It's excruciating headache. You're kind of referencing the cross of Christ. This is an excruciating ordeal I'm going through. You're kind of referencing the cross of Christ. And it's not blasphemy to use that word. It's a nice word, actually. Excruciating. So Paul, Paul's a bit of a prodigy. He studies under a very famous rabbi. And he's an assiduous student. He knows a lot. But apparently, during the ministry of Christ, he wasn't too thrilled. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee. And in another epistle of Paul's, he says that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. A bit of a brag. I'm a Pharisee of a Pharisee. In other words, hey, I was not just a Pharisee. I was at the head of the pack. He was such a Pharisee that when the deacons were ordained, you those of you who are thinking about being a deacon, listen carefully. Do you know who the first martyr in the New Testament church was? Oh, he was a deacon. He wasn't a teaching elder. He wasn't a ruling elder. He was a deacon who happened to be blessed with a lot of extraordinary gifts that I've never seen a deacon uh, gifted with. Because those gifts are gone. So you don't have to worry about being stoned by a Jewish mob, most likely here in Western Pennsylvania. He is such a Pharisee that he is there when Stephen is stoned to death. He is there by his clothes. He is there probably clapping, probably cheering. But that's not enough for Saul of Tarsus. That's not enough. He decides literally on a campaign of religious genocide. He goes to the high priest and basically, and this is a paraphrase, saying, listen, I will be your guy. Remember, this is a Pharisee going to the Sadducees. They don't get along because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did. Sadducees didn't believe in angels. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees didn't believe anything was inspired except the first book of Moses, the first five books of Moses. Well, the Pharisees said, um, the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're all in the book. So he goes to the high priest and says, listen, I'll be your guy. You give me the paperwork and I will go fetch these Christians. I'll drag them back to you in chains. And you know what? He was darn good at the job. He was an effective missionary for our Lord after his conversion, but before that, he was really good at the tasks the Sadducees gave to him. As he's going to Damascus, which is in Syria, and it's still in Syria, he's going that far. Now, when you look on a modern map, you say, well, that's not really that far. Well, in those days, it's quite a trip. He's going up there and he's converted in a dramatic conversion. He has a one-on-one encounter with the risen Christ. Struck blind. It's a changed man. His name becomes Paul. 
And he stops dragging Christians to the high priest. He stops being a hitman for the high priest. And he now becomes a fanatic for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the vast majority of the book of Acts is telling us about Paul's journeys. We just read about his defense in Felix. Here's how it works. We just read about his defense in front of Felix. Give you a little foretaste of what's going to happen in the book of Acts. Eventually, Paul is going to get fed up with the process. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen. He has that right. I appeal to Caesar. He says, you appeal to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. In the book of Acts, the Roman governors are always very happy to see Paul leave their jurisdiction. If you want to go to Rome, not a problem. I'll give you an escort. I'll give you a ship. I will send you off. Here's some food. Get out of here. And he gets to Rome. The book of Acts ends with him basically almost near Rome. And this is where the book of Ephesians is written for Rome. Between 60 and 62 A.D. Under house arrest for two years, he writes four epistles. The book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, the book of Philippians, and the letter to Philemon. There is a great deal of commonality between Ephesians and Colossians. And there is evidence that Ephesians was meant to be a circular letter. Ephesus was a very important city. It was a It was a port city. And it was um, a provincial Roman city. And so it would have had influence on what we today would call the suburbs. The outlying areas, it would have had influence. And there would have been churches spread throughout that area. In what today we call Asia. And what in New Testament terms is called Asia Minor. It's simply Turkey. And in your insert, you should see Turkey's in the news too. Turkey connects Syria, Iraq, and Iran. If you get out of those countries and you're able to walk through Turkey going west, you end up in Europe. And in the book of Acts, Paul wants to go to Asia. But he hears the Macedonian call, a vision. And the Lord is basically telling him, do not go west, young man. No, don't go east, young man. Go west. This is very controversial. It's right there in the text. God wanted Paul to go to Europe and bring the gospel to Europe first. At the Council of Jerusalem, it was agreed that Peter would basically stay in Jerusalem. We don't have really any historical evidence that Peter ever got to Rome, much less became the bishop of the Church of Rome. He might have been crucified there, but we don't have evidence he ever got there. If Peter was the bishop of Rome, then why would Paul write a 16-chapter letter to Rome? Peter was already on the ground, right? No. No. Peter was tasked with... Staying in and around Palestine. Paul was tasked with going out. And in another part of the book of Acts, the Lord tells the prophet, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And when you read about Paul, you realize, wow, this is, 
wow, this guy is really sold out for the Lord because he is going, he is going through everything. And he writes this letter. And this, these six chapters are loaded with spiritual diamonds. It's as if you walked, if you were out caving, if you were out camping, and all of a sudden came into a cave and you found somehow a treasure chest full of diamonds or gold bricks. How happy would you be? Anybody hit the Powerball this week? Nah, I don't think so. If you did, please, really, um, you know, tithe, okay? <laughs> tithe if you hit that Powerball. Just a joke. Ephesians is a treasure chest. It was the favorite epistle of John Calvin. And John Calvin was a man, just like me, just like any of you. But when Calvin says, hey, this is my favorite, it's not a bad thing to say. Maybe I'll peruse the book. It happens to be my second favorite of the epistles. I like Hebrews best, but that's just me. It's got everything in here, and I, I can't emphasize enough that if you take the time this year to truly study and understand the book of Ephesians, your knowledge of your faith will be completely and utterly changed. If you truly dig in, whether you listen to it on CD, whether you listen to it on an MP3, whether you read it, whether you have somebody speak it to you, whether you write it out by hand, whether you type it out by computer, whether you do all of those media functions, if this can get into your bones, if this can get into your spirit, your faith will be utterly changed. Because there is not a single important doctrine that Paul does not only touch upon, but explain in this 3,000 words. Only under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit could a mere man ever begin to do that. And that's why he calls himself Paul, an apostle. An apostle is someone who is merely sent. That's all it means. He's been sent by somebody else. It's very similar to in 2 Corinthians when Paul says that we are ambassadors of Christ. Does an ambassador take his own ambassadorship? No, he is given it by someone else. Paul never claimed authority for himself. And he was always hounded by his reputation. And he was always hounded by the fact that he wasn't one of the original twelve. Minus Judas, of course. He was a second generation Apostle, given second class status, and he always acknowledged it. But ironically, he who was last was given the most revelation. Paul wrote 13 epistles, Peter wrote two, James, the Lord's half brother, wrote one, Jude, the Lord's half brother, wrote one. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. I can assure you it wasn't Paul. It was a brilliant man. John wrote four, if you count Revelation as an epistle. And I'm not sure you can classify Revelation as as a letter. But he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You see, Paul is assigned this office by the will of God. And he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, he's to preach Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Paul says in another place in his writings, far be it for me to glory in anything but the cross of Christ. Can we say that about ourselves? Is the cross of Christ, is the person of Jesus Christ, is the message of Jesus Christ the utterly most important thing in our lives? Please listen carefully. Life and death are at stake here. You know, this past week or so, we've had a, 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 rat, a rash of people, old and young, in the hospital. I'm not talking about that. We all know that that's going to occur. If you're young today, someday you will be old. If you consider yourself old today, you'll be older in a year. When I say life and death are at stake, I am talking about eternity. Your eternal existence hinges upon one thing and one thing alone. Did you believe the message of the cross? Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that Christ paid the debt that you rightfully owe to the Father and that you place yourself at the mercy of God and plead nothing but Christ's blood? That is all that is necessary to be saved. Nothing that you or I can do can ever, ever meet the bar of God because His law is perfect and we confess our sins daily. And it's a great relief to know that we go to God and we confess our sins and He has mercy upon us. Who of us doesn't need mercy every single day, multiple times during the day? It's good for you in your prayers to say something to the effect that, Lord, I sin in ways that I can't begin to imagine. Try and keep track of them all day long. Get yourself one of those little clickers. Every time you think you sin, click it. You'll get carpal tunnel syndrome within two days. Nothing we do is perfect. That's what Paul is saying. Nothing we do is perfect. That's why we need Christ. And it's important for us to understand that God doesn't talk to us directly. He spoke to Adam directly. He spoke to his prophets semi-directly, obviously to Peter and to Paul directly. I'm talking about the risen Christ. If you go home and expect the risen Christ to have a conversation with you, you will be sorely disappointed. That's not the way he works. Many people have asked me, why not? And I said, I don't know. He doesn't tell me. If he doesn't tell me why he's not having a conversation with you, how can I possibly explain it? But he's given you this book. And that's a stumbling block to people. They say, well, it was written by men. And we say, yes, you have to acknowledge. Yes, it's written by men. We can see their personalities in each of their epistles. It's not written by committee. You can tell when something's written by committee, can't you? Have you ever read a document at work where it's, you, it's, wow, wow, okay, I know who wrote that part. I know who wrote that part. When you read Paul and you compare it to Peter, you realize you're dealing with two entirely different people. 
When you read Paul and you read the letter to Hebrews, you realize, oh, this, um, these guys would have had a really great conversation at Starbucks, but they have a different perspective on certain things. Paul wasn't a priest. He was a Pharisee. There's a pretty good chance that the writer of the book of Hebrews was a former Hebrew priest because he talks an awful lot about the sacrificial system. Not the Old Testament sacrifices, but he lays out the entire system. We have to acknowledge, yes, they're men. When our opponents say it's written by men, just say, yeah, you're right. Oh, you don't want to argue? No, it's written by men. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. He uses their personalities. He uses their testimonies to teach us. He doesn't speak to us directly. And I have to tell you, it's scary. It's a privilege. It's an honor to stand in this pulpit every week. But it is scary. So I need your prayers as your pastor. And and frankly, you need to pray for all pastors throughout the world. Because if they are taking their call seriously in any way, shape, or form, it's a terrifying reality to stand before God's people and say, this is what God has said. This is what God wants you to do. Do you realize that? And I will be held accountable on the final day to a higher degree than anybody else in this room. I'm not saying that to brag. I say that with chills going up my spine. A second online, by the way, are ruling elders. <laughs> Close on the heels. That's why James, the Lord's half-brother, says, Be not many teachers, knowing that we shall incur a stricter condemnation. Paul understood that as well. He writes it to the saints who are in Eph- oh, the, the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. I, I, I thought saints were holy people who, after they die, do a bunch of miracles, and, and those miracles are somehow proven by a court approved by a particular church in Rome, and then they're declared saints, and then you can pray to them, and all kinds of cool things will happen. I I, I guess not. The saints who are in Ephesus, and Paul uses this term all the time. Guess what? You're a saint. I challenge you today, well, maybe not today, but sometime this week in casual conversation, did you know that I was a saint of God? And you know what? You won't be lying. Now they may say, well, I know your history. You know? I've been married to you for 30 years. You're my father. You're my child. You're a saint of God. I don't care if you're two years old. I don't care if you're almost 90. You believe in Christ, you're a saint of God. That means you are sanctified, cleansed, and set apart for his use. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that when you die, people can pray to you and get miracles in your name. That's insane. My father died almost 11 years ago. 
And the priest at his funeral told us, Ned is right here. And I remember my Uncle Mark just groaning in back of me. And then the priest said, you can pray to Ned and he'll help you. And then a few of my brothers went, you can't pray. This, that's paganism. Praying to relatives, that's, that's Confucianism. Okay? If your relatives who have passed are in heaven, they don't want to hear your complaints. Because they're having a great time at the foot of Christ. And if they were not saved, they're wishing they would have listened to you. And he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message, my friends. Grace, simply defined is not getting something unpleasant. Is that correct? I see some of you thinking, nope, it's not. That's mercy. Mercy is not getting something unpleasant that you deserve. Grace is getting something wonderful that you don't deserve. Because grace is a gift. If you deserve it, it's not a gift. You get paid. You go to the boss, say, hey, um, I put in my 50 hours. You're a little light on the check here. If he puts an extra $300 into the check, that's called a bonus. It's called grace. You didn't earn it. And peace. Why do you have peace? You have peace because of the cross of Christ. We'll see that in chapter 2. We're at peace with God because Christ himself is the peace treaty between God and his people. The peace treaty is written in his body. It's written in his blood. And your names are on that contract. On that covenant. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that grace and peace have come to us and that that message is preached through mere men. We ask that you would grant us grace to understand and to believe. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.